at Romans chapter 4, verse 13. We're going to read down to the end of the chapter to verse 25 this morning. Um, You may not find this to be the most exciting part of Romans. I, I get that. There's a lot of really great parts to Romans. But I mentioned this two Lord's Days ago to you, and I want to I re-mention it this morning, that, that this, is, this is Paul at his most brilliant. It's not Paul at his easiest. And, and a couple people told me they had a hard time understanding some of these things. I get it. There's a lot here. You have to know a lot of Bible. You have to know God's dealings with Abraham very carefully. But this is Abraham at, its, at, at a genius theological level. Abraham, I'm sorry, this is Paul at a genius theological le- level. Remember, the apostle here is, is uh, trying to explain the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And he knows that some of his Jewish contemporaries, many of them, are going to argue with him and say, well, that's great, but we have Moses, we have the law, we're justified by our law-keeping. We have Torah, and no one can take that from us. And so what Paul does, and I'll leave this here this morning as we come to this text, is he is going to take any Jewish listeners and us here today, he is going to take them back to the prototypical believer who happened to be the one from whom the nation of Israel was brought, and that is Abraham. And he is going to go back to Genesis 15, 6. And he's going to say, and the most important word in this whole chapter, Paul says, what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? Not what do you think? What do other people say? What would be a good idea? What does the scripture say? And he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham, Abram believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So so Paul is going to pull the entire doctrine of justification by faith alone out of that one verse in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Now, he is continuing on in this very nuanced argument about Abraham and justification. And picking up in verse 13, Paul now says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the inherence of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, that's the Jews, the old covenant Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, 
or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, if you spend any amount of time in the annals of church history, you will learn that the greatest saints and those with the strongest faith oftentimes usually had the hardest hand in life dealt to them. I was reminded just a couple weeks ago about the hymn writer Anne Steele, who lived in the 18th century. Anne Steele suffered incredible difficulties, tragedies, and suffering in her life. When, when, um, when she was three, her mother died. When she was a little girl, she became an invalid and was an invalid the rest of her life. When she was a very young adult, she was engaged to be married, and the day before her wedding, her fiancé died. Mother dies at three, invalid her whole life, fiancé dies. And the question is, how could Anne Steele go on to write 144 hymns and model what it looks like to live a life of faith in a world that is so hard under such difficult circumstances. One of the great hymns, perhaps the, the one that you know the best that you wrote is Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. And, and you get something of where Anne Steele found the strength to trust God in the midst of those trials. There's another hymn that she wrote. It's called, When Doubts and Fears Prevailing Rise. When Doubts and Fears Prevailing Rise. Listen to this. She says, When doubts and fears prevailing rise and fainting hope almost expires, Jesus, to thee I lift my eyes. To thee I breathe my strong desires. Here let my faith unshaken dwell. Immovable, the promise stands. Not all the powers of earth and hell can e'er dissolve the sacred bands. You see that Anne Steele found her strength to believe in the midst of trials that on the surface said, God must be against me. She found that hope and that strength in faith in the promises of God, the sure, steadfast, immovable promises. It's almost as if Anne Steele read Romans chapter 4. I'm sure that she did, and it's almost as if she understood exactly what Abraham did, what justifying faith looked like for Abraham. Now, I noted already we've looked at how Paul has introduced Abraham, how he has said Abraham, and this is very important, Abraham was justified by faith alone, looking forward to the coming Christ. And the question was, was he justified as a Jew when he was circumcised? Or before he was circumcised? And the answer is long before he was circumcised. He was a Gentile. He was ungodly. He was living this side of the Tower of Babel, worshiping idols on the other side of the Jordan. 
And God came and God gave him exceedingly great and precious promises. And Abraham took God at his word and God justified Abram. And he made him what he would become the father of many nations. And what the Apostle Paul is going to say here this morning, and I want you to, to focus especially, I want you to focus on the end of verse 17. He trusted in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. And then notice these next words in verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. Now, I want us to consider just two things this morning as we look at verses 13 and following. First, I want us to consider uh, faith and the promise of justifying grace. And then I want us to consider faith and the evidence of justifying grace. Faith in the promise of justifying grace. Faith in the evidence of justifying grace. We'll notice that as Paul is continuing, and I've, I've told you already that verse 13 goes with everything before, and yet, yet Paul is transitioning a bit here to focus on the nature of, of saving faith and the correlation it holds to the, the promise of God. Now, um, the apostle is going to do something very marvelous in these first several verses. He's going he's to contrast the law of God with the promises of God. By the way, there are many people who will try to deceive you with a false gospel, and they'll tell you things like this. Nowhere in scripture is faith contrasted with works. Uh, how about the whole book of Romans? How about Galatians? How about Ephesians? Um, how about the whole Bible? And, and they'll say things like, never is, is law pitted against promise. How about in this passage, it is explicitly pitted against promise. Notice Notice, uh, notice verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, here's, here's the amazing thing. Remember, all of the Jews who are listening to this, they're all the descendants of Abraham. And they have the Torah, and they pride themselves in saying, we have Torah, we're not like these nations, we're better than them, we have the law, we're law keepers. And if you looked in some of the extra books that shouldn't be in your Bible, they're called apocryphal books. There is one book in particular, 1 Maccabees, that actually states Abraham was justified by his law keeping. Now, I want to ask you this morning, how could Abraham be counted righteous before God by the obedience he rendered to the law when God hadn't even given him the law. He didn't even have a concept of who Moses was. He didn't understand what Sinai was. There was no external law. There was promise. That's Paul's point. There was promise. The promise to Abraham is the promise to you and me. It's the same promise. We, we trust the God of promise. We hope even against hope. We take him at his word. We say, Lord, I know you've promised. I know that you're true. I know that what you've said is right, even when I can't see it. And God's promise here is the same promise you're called to believe in the gospel. Notice, notice verse 13. This is marvelous. Notice verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the land of Israel. No, it doesn't say that. 
You got to listen really carefully this morning. The Apostle Paul is not changing what Genesis says. The Apostle Paul understands that the promise that God gave Abraham was so much bigger than the land of Israel. That was just a little provisional down payment in the Old Covenant. It it was the down payment for the whole thing. And, And Paul understands that God's promise that Abraham would believe and would be justified by believing the God who promised that he promised that Abraham and his seed would become heirs of the world. Now, that means when Paul read Genesis and God said that he was going to give him a land, Paul would have understood the Hebrew word is Eretz, a land. It can also mean earth. There's a double fulfillment. Yes, in the Old Covenant, it was the land of Israel. But, but ultimately, it is God saying, I am going to make you heir of all things. Remember, Jesus would stand on the Mount of Olives and he would say to his disciples, the meek shall inherit the earth. It's the same thing, heir of all things. The Apostle Paul will understand this. He'll say, don't you understand that if you're trusting Christ, that you're, you're heirs of all things. All things are yours. The world, life, death, things present, things to come, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. And that promise was embedded in the Abrahamic covenant. God didn't just say, I'm going to make you into the nation of Israel. He said, I'm going to bless you. All the nations are going to be blessed in your seed. Abraham would have understood this to some extent. He would have understood that God was promising something so great that God was promising in the everlasting inheritance that the, the new heavens and the new earth that John sees at the end of the Bible, that was all promised to Abraham. And it's all secured by Christ. Now, notice no sooner has the apostle raised the issue of the promise that we're called to believe. He then juxtaposes law and promise. Notice verse 14. If it is adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise void. So essentially, he's saying there, if, if, if you can inherit the world by your law keeping, then faith means nothing and God's promise means nothing. It's all up to what you do. So, so what Paul is doing is he's saying there is an absolute antithesis between law and And promise. Listen to this, John Murray, reflecting on verse 15. For the law brings wrath. Notice this, he says, law commands and it produces wrath when it is violated. It knows no grace. Write that down, underline it, believe it. Law commands and when it's not kept, it only produces wrath. It knows no grace. Murray says, promise is the assurance of gracious bestowment. It is a free gift. You see, this is why justification has to be by faith alone and Christ alone. Because it's built on the free and unmerited promise of God. God didn't have to promise. God didn't have to say, I'll make you heir of all things. He didn't have to do any of that. 
He is so full of goodness in himself. He is so wanting to display his grace and mercy to vessels of mercy that he's chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that he said, I have devised a way of getting glory for myself and that is by making these great promises and then calling my people to trust in me as the God of promise. Um, you know, God determined he would ground saving faith in his covenant promises. Um, I, I probably said this to you in the past, but I want to say it this morning. Again, if I have, listen very carefully. Faith is not, if, if I just muster up enough hope that things are going to go well, that's, that's not what faith is. Faith is not, if I, if I can just, you know, summons up just enough positive energy that, 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 and believe that the great things are going to happen. That's, that's, not, that's not biblical faith. That's, that's optimistic naivete. That's just, that's a pipe dream. Um, please don't fall prey to that. There's many charlatans who preach from the Bible who preach that as what saving faith is. That's not what justifying faith is. Justifying faith is us acknowledging that God is who he says he is, that he has promised what he has promised, that he has fulfilled those promises in Christ, and we are collectively saying, I will take him at his word. I will trust in Christ, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Guaranteed, all the promises of God are signed, sealed, and delivered in Jesus. He has put his seal on his son. He has said, come to me and I will give you life. He and he alone can merit what God has promised. Jesus is the only one who by his works could merit what God freely gives us by promise. Now, um, you know, it's interesting. Abraham's faith is really no different than ours. You know, we can sometimes look at individuals in, in, um, in Scripture, these, these great figures of faith that are in that great faith chapter in Hebrews 11, and, and we could think, oh, I, I wish I had faith like them. I wish I could do what they did. Um, listen to this, Robert Canlish, great old Scottish theologian, said, Abraham's faith really differs in no material respect from that which you are called to exercise. He has no promise on which his faith may lean other than the same promise you have, and what his faith has to lay hold of is the same unseen Savior. Do you understand that? Abraham, he had the same promise as we have, and his faith was to rest in the same unseen Savior. He had not seen Christ. He didn't even know the name Jesus. In fact, we have more than he has because all he had was the bare promise. And yet he trusted the God of promise and he was justified by looking forward to the unseen Christ. Listen to this. Canlish says this. He says, when Abram believes the promise of the supernatural birth of Isaac, he does the same thing which you have to do when you believe the promise, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's the same promise. Remember, Christ is going to come from Isaac. 
It's the same gospel. It's the gospel promise. Abraham had that held out to him in, in, in shell form, in, in, in seed form. We have it held out to us as a massive tree knowing all the scriptures, the same promise, the same God. You know, we sang this morning, and I love that hymn, The God of Abraham Praise. It's so triumphant, and, and yet I don't know if you've ever thought about this in the Old Testament. The title, the the frequent title by which men put their trust in God was that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was the covenant Lord. He was the God of promise. But when you come into the New Testament, he is no longer the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is now called the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has fulfilled what was given by promise to Abraham. It's the same God. It's the same covenant promises And it's the same promises that you are called to trust as you look to the one who fulfilled them in his death and resurrection. Now, Paul gives us in those first three verses um, really a theology of law and promise so that we would better understand the nature of faith and the promise of justifying grace. I will say this this morning. Um, If you're not in Christ, I want you to notice verse 15. If you're not in Christ, um, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you this. There is only wrath. If you're not in Christ by faith alone, there is only wrath. Because we by nature are under the curse and the wrath of God. And the law produces wrath. Notice what Paul says. The law brings wrath. But when we come to Christ and we trust in him... There's no more condemnation. You see what Paul's doing? He's setting up what he's going to declare boldly in Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Because the curse of the law has been removed. The wrath has been taken. The promise has been fulfilled. Christ now blesses his people. And, And the only thing God requires of you is that you take him at his word and you trust him on the fulfillment of that promise in Christ. It's that simple. In fact, turn over, if you would, to verse 20. I'm going to come back to this in a moment. But notice this. Abraham, we're told at the end of verse 20, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So, so when we take God at his word, when we believe the promises against thousands of voices that try to tell you, you got to work harder, you got to be a better person, you got to do more, you've got to try harder, and everything around you telling you all kinds of falsehood, when you take the promises of God and you grow strong in faith, you glorify God for those promises, God is glorified, you're strengthened. That's how the Christian life works. Um, There are many Christians who think, I come to Christ and then I better get working. That's not the gospel and that is not what's taught in this passage. And if you believe that, I would warn you this morning that you would repent and you would ask the Lord to change you because it is not come to Christ and then get working for your justification. Come to Christ and then keep the law for your justification. It is take God on the simple promises that he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will make you an heir of everything. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. And every other promise that's rooted in the gospel, 
Now, we've seen here very briefly faith in the promise of justifying grace. And I want you to see there that it's only by grace. Notice verse 16, that's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise grace depends on faith so that it rests on grace. It's got to be a gift. It's got to be gratuitously given by God. It can't be earned. It cannot be merited. Y'all, this is what we had a reformation over. It's amazing to me that everyone wouldn't hear this and just jump up and down and do cartwheels in their heart. I can't even do a cartwheel, but I could do one in my heart. This should make you ecstatic if you're trusting in Jesus. It is only by faith because it's all of grace and it all rests on the free and unmerited promise of God. That's it. That's it. Now, I want us to consider, though, what Paul does here. He moves from faith and the promise of justifying grace to faith and the evidence of justifying grace. I I sometimes wonder if Paul's anticipating here an objection. And that objection would sound something like this. Okay, Paul, that sounds great. You told us that Abraham believed, and the moment he believed, it was counted to him for righteousness. You told us the second he believed the promise, looking by faith in the unseen Christ to come, the second he believed that promise, you're telling us God accepted him forever as righteous in his sight. And Paul would say yes. And then I think Paul is hearing another objection, and one that we often hear. Well, but what about, what about, uh, what Uh, What about our call to be obedient? Because the scripture calls us to be obedient. It sounds too easy. By the way, if the gospel sounds too easy, that was an objection that Paul had to deal with often because the true gospel is always going to be subject to charges of antinomianism. It will always be subject. Paul will, in chapter 6, verse 1, say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Because the gospel of God's justifying grace in Christ is so free. It is so unmerited. And it is a one-time act of God that you can see how people would then say, well, this is going to lead to lawlessness. But here's what Paul does. Paul goes back to the entire narrative about Abraham. And he pieces together for us this marvelous picture of what justifying faith looks like throughout the entirety of the believer's life, through Abraham's life. Now notice me. Notice that Paul says here um, that he promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. Verse seventeen. God in whom he believed. Now notice this: who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now. There is going to be a common thread in everything that Paul says from this verse through the rest of the chapter. And here's what that common thread is. The great threat with which Abraham was constantly confronted was death. The great enemy, the thing that would challenge Abraham's faith, and would ultimately show that Abraham was believing in the unseen God, no matter what his circumstances were, the great threat to that, the great challenge, was death. Paul's going to say a couple of things. He's going to say, number one, 
Abraham was 100. He knew, like, the clock is ticking. I don't have any offspring. God said the nations are going to be blessed in this promised seed, this promised son. But I don't have a promised son. Every time I go into the tent with my 90-year-old barren wife, and I realize God said I'm going to give you a kid, and all the nations are going to be blessed in him. Every time I, I go forward, I realize that clock is ticking. Like, Abraham didn't have a whole lot left on the bucket list. He had lived his life to the full. He knew that he was as good as dead. How do we know that? Paul says that. (laughs) Notice verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. And then number two, he considered the barrenness of Sarah's, Sarah's womb. She was, in a sense, reproductively dead. And so death challenged Abraham. And then God gives him the promised seed, Isaac, who he trusted God to give him, even though he didn't know how God was going to do it in the face of death. And then God says, kill Isaac. More death. Death everywhere. Death for Abraham, death for Sarah's womb, death for the promised son. And yet against all of that, he believed. Listen to this, Charles Spurgeon. I was just enamored by this this week. I was telling a number of you last night. Listen to this. The great difficulty with Abraham was death. Death was around him on every side. God had promised him life and life more abundantly. For he was to be the father of many nations But as to all possibility of his being a father, his body was dead. He was a hundred. Sarah also, as to being a mother, was practically dead. She was 90. Further, the Lord bade him, when Isaac was miraculously born, offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham was willing to do that even at God's command. This is what justifying faith looks like as it's evidenced by a life of faith. Now, what does that mean for you? There are lots of things we could say this morning. What does this mean for you here this morning? Because you could be thoroughly confused this morning. I hope you're not because this is so rich and so good for our souls. But, but what does this mean for you? Well, what it means for us is that Abraham was no different than us. Abraham would have felt the struggle of looking at his circumstances And he would have looked at his circumstances, even though he had God's promise, and he would have been tempted to think, God is not for me. If Abraham looked at what was in front of him, he would have had to say, hardship, 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 trial. Does God even love me? Is God really going to do this? You know, this is the cash value for us this morning when we have a tendency, don't we, to look at our circumstances and and, and to read our relationship or our standing before the Lord in light of our circumstances. And what we tend to do is when things are going well, we tend to think we're trusting God, we're happy, things are going well, but we're actually not trusting in the Lord, we're trusting that things are going well. This is true for all of us. We're, when, when, we are, when things are going very well, we have a tendency to have very very, very narrow room for faith because our hearts are filled with joy and excitement and 
and thankfulness and gratitude. And where that's welling up, we have very low room to be exercising faith in the unseen Christ the way we should be. But when God strips it all away, you see whether or not a man or a woman has real faith in Jesus Christ. Um, Now, I want to say this this morning as we look at this. Abraham learned to press through circumstances that seemed to run counter to God's promise. Because as he believed in the God of promise to send a redeemer, he was strengthened in faith and he was built up in hope. So what, what that justifying faith does as it's exercised in the life of the believer, it, it, it goes on to create hope in us. Even when everything seems against us. This is how Anne Steele, who has suffered more hardship than probably any of us in this place, could write, dear refuge of my weary soul. Um, oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. But she could press through because she knew the God of promise. And the faith that she exercised created hope. Notice the way Paul says this here. I love this. He said that Abram, in faith, believed and hoped against hope. He hoped against hope. There was no hope for Abraham. He's 100. Sarah's 90. There is no child. He sent Ishmael away. There's no tangible sense things are going to get better. But as he believed in hope, he believed against hope. Now, I actually think what Paul's doing here is brilliant. He's answering the charge that that he and his gospel is some sort of easy believism. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying far from being easy believism, like just believe, that's it. He's actually showing us what real saving faith looks like in the life of a Christian, that that it goes against all odds, that it trusts God even when it can't see him. This This is what Job cries out in Job. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You see, Job was hoping against hope. Job, in Job 19.25, said, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. He had not seen Christ. He took God on his promise. He knew God was going to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. He knew that a Redeemer was coming. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. At last he will stand on the earth. Though God slay me, yet will I trust him. Abraham's whole life was essentially saying, though there is nothing but death and barrenness in front of me, God has promised me life and I am going to trust him. You know where Abraham's faith leads him? To buy a little burial place in the land of Israel. It's the only land Abraham ever owned. It was a place to bury himself and Sarah, one of his sons and his son's wife and grandson and grandson's wife. What was the point of that? Abraham was hoping in the resurrection Abraham was acting in faith. He was even burying in faith. He was dying in faith. This is why the writer of Hebrews said these all died in faith. They died believing. 
not having received the promises, but seeing them afar off, they, they embraced them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. They acknowledged that here they had no continuing city, but they looked for the one to come. That's how Abraham, in hope, lived against hope, by faith in the promise of God. Now, I have not touched on this, but I want you to look briefly with me at verse 20. Paul makes this statement, and if I, if I confess this to you this morning, it's been a verse that has troubled me at different times throughout my Christian life, because when you read the narrative about Abraham, Abraham stumbles at many points. Remember, Abraham doesn't believe God's promise. He, he listens to his wife, who tells him to take his hand, her handmaiden. He goes into her. She has Ishmael, and we have the whole Middle Eastern conflict today because of it. That was a big mistake. That was not an act of faith. And then when Abraham, thankfully the gospel is for the Middle East as well as every other country. But, but as, as he went traveling through various places, he would often lie about Sarah being his sister and not his wife. And we don't want to downplay that. Abraham was not sinless. In fact, Paul tells us at the beginning of this chapter that Abraham, when he came to be justified, was ungodly. But then here in verse 20... Paul says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, that seems to say Abraham just got stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger in faith. And I don't know you, and you don't know my internal uh, spiritual condition any given day or time unless I tell you, but I know that the Christian life doesn't feel like we're just getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger in faith. So what is Paul saying here? I think what Paul is saying here is, number one, the faith that God requires is not something in us. Abraham, by nature, was very weak. That's why God had to strengthen him. And I think what Paul is saying here is that Abraham had two options. Either I go forward and follow this God of promise and I take him at his word and I believe that he's going to send a redeemer and bless the nations and fulfill these promises even though I'm as good as dead or I go back to paganism. You see, Abraham didn't have another choice. It was either trust this God or go back to what God redeemed me out of graciously. And I think Paul's saying... He did not waver. He did not go back. He kept going forward. His faith was not perfect faith. No one has perfect faith. Listen very carefully this morning. No Christian has a perfectly strong faith. Even the Apostle Paul needed Jesus to say to him, my grace is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Um, now, the goal is always for us to be strengthened in faith. That's why you're here this morning. That's why we preach every Lord's Day. That's why we're in the scriptures. That's why we come to the table. That's why we spend time together praying together. Tonight, we're going to pray together as a church. That's a way for us to strengthen our faith. And yet, we acknowledge that it's not the strength of our faith. It's the strength of the Christ who fulfilled the promises of God that justifies and redeems us. 
and by who we have our faith strengthened. I love, um, I love how the Lord Jesus says, he says, a bruised reed he would not break, and a smoldering wick he would not quench. What does Jesus mean when he says that? He's saying there are true believers who have just a spark of faith. They have just the smallest amount of faith. And remember, it was Jesus that, that, that said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, it's not the amount of faith, it's the object of your faith that's strong. Listen to this. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, says, if you have faith... Even in infancy, it's infancy, do not be discouraged, for a little faith is faith. As a spark of fire is fire. Watson says, a weak faith may lay hold on a strong Christ. Oh, write that down. Put that in your Bibles. A weak faith, a weak faith may lay hold on a strong Christ. A bruised reed he will not break. If, if Christ knows that you're in a position where you're weak is, your faith is weak, where you're, you're, your trust is ebbing low, you're fearful, you're worried, you, you're anxious about many things, he, he doesn't come along and say, I'm going to break that and put that out. He comes to fan that, to heal it. He comes to strengthen. That's, that's what I think we're being told here in verse 20, that, that Abraham kept believing, and as he did, and as God kept giving him his promises, as he kept pointing him to the promises of Christ, Abraham was growing stronger to hope against hope. That's how that works in our life, wherever you are. You know, I was thinking about this this week. You could go to lots of churches and they could do all kinds of nice prepackaged sermons and tell you all kinds of stuff. This is like, this is it. This is the big thing. This is the big thing about Christianity. Are we going to be a people who trust in an unseen God of promise who has given us exceedingly great and precious promises, who has fulfilled them in Christ, who has secured the outcome for us if we will but trust him? When our faith is low, would we not go back to his promises and say, Lord, would you strengthen me in your promises? Help me where I am weak. Make your power to be at work in me when I am weak. Because what happens is we start looking at our circumstances and we take our eyes off of Christ and we put them on our circumstances. And just like Peter, when he gets out of the boat and starts walking to Jesus, but he starts to look at the storm, he starts to sink. That's what happens when we look at the circumstances and we're not looking at Christ, we're going to sink. Now, here's what I know about life. Your life is not just going to get better and better and better and better and better. In fact, what I know about life now in my mid-40s is that almost always when someone thinks they get to the top, they fall very quickly and very hard to the bottom. And so I know there are always going to be circumstances that are always going to seem to cut against the promises of God. And justifying faith says, I will trust him even when I can't see what he's doing. I will trust him even though all I see is fog in front of me. Now remember, I told you, and I'm going to end with this. Abraham had the promises of God. 
And eventually he had Isaac. And that's it. That was it. Nothing else. Here's what you have. Notice what Paul does here. Notice verse 23 and 24 and 25. I want us to just end here. Notice this. The words, it was counted to him, so his justification, were not written for his sake alone, but also ours. It will be counted to us as righteousness. We'll get a righteous standing credited to us who believe in him who raised, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What is Paul doing? He's saying, do you understand that you have so much more reason to ground your faith in the unmerited promises of God because you know how God has worked this out for you? Though we do not see Jesus in the flesh, we see him throughout the pages of Scripture, everywhere clearly set out as the one who fulfilled the promises. What Paul, I think, is saying is you have more reason, if I can say that, than even Abraham to trust, even when your circumstances seem to go against it, because you know that God did not spare his own son. I think Paul's teeing this up for Romans 8. Remember, Abraham went to offer up Isaac, the son of promise, and God spared him. But Paul says here, God's eternal son was delivered up. He was delivered up by the Father himself for our redemption. He was delivered up to the cross for our sins and unrighteousness. He was delivered up as the free gift of God, nailed to the tree for you and me, and he was raised up from the dead so that you can be confident that your righteous standing before God, even now, has been risen, has ascended, and even now appears in the presence of God for you. That's awesome. So that when all the circumstances of your life come crumbling down, you can say with Job, you can say with Abraham, though he slay me, though I'm as good as dead, I don't know how I get through this. You, you can say with Anne Steele, when doubts and fears prevailing rise and feigning hope almost expires, Jesus, to thee I lift my eyes. To thee I breathe my strong desires. Here let my faith unshaken dwell, immovable, the promise stands. Not all the powers of earth and hell can e'er dissolve the sacred bands. That's, that's the good news to you this morning. I hope that you are asking the Lord to strengthen you in the same faith that he strengthened Abraham with so that you, like Abraham, will be a people who believe in the God who can do the impossible, who delivered up his son and raised him for your justification. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you are a God of promise. Thank you for your promises that you have given us throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And we thank you this morning that you have fulfilled every one of those promises in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our righteous representative. We thank you that you were delivered up for our offenses and you were raised for our justification. 
Lord, would you increase our faith? Where it is weak, would you strengthen it? Would you make us to be a people who collectively, by faith, hope against hope, merely on the free, gracious promises you have given us? And so, Father in heaven, would you hear us and would you do this for us? For your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.